0: Oh boy. (laughs) My name is Fred. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is October 8th, 1988. And you know, in 1973, I was down in Portland, Oregon, and I had to spend there for a couple weeks. And I, Sunday night, I ventured down to the Skid Row District, which is Burnside. And me and this one guy got in a big shouting match, and apparently we was disturbing the residents down there, and the cops picked us up. And the next morning we went to before the judge, and right, you know, two people ahead of me was this one Indian guy, and I could see him, and he was just shaking. And I was saying, oh, God, please don't let him shake, because I know shaking is contagious to me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, when he went before the judge, the judge looked at him and says, You're shaking. Are you nervous? And the Indian guy said, No, Your Honor, I'm just quick. <laughs> well, that's the way I feel to that right now, quick. <laughs> you know, one morning, one Sunday morning, I woke up from the sun, lighting up the teepee. I got off the buffalo rope, I threw the flap to the teepee open, and I stood outside facing the east, the direction of the new beginning. And it was a new beginning. And I stood there and I looked there, you know what, I believe I'll join AA today. (laughs) Oh, I wish it was that easy. <laughs> I mean, that would've, it would have avoided all the prison, you know, jail. <laughs> the divorces and all this other stuff.
1: <laughs>
0: but, you know, I was born in 1940. My dad was a World War I veteran in the Navy. After the war, he joined the National Guard. And he was active. Him and my oldest brother was active in the National Guard. During World War II, they called up that National Guard. And uh, they told my dad, they said, we can't take you because your family's too large. I'm the last one out of 11. And so my dad, being a patriotic person he was, him and my mother were very patriotic, my dad said, what can I do to serve the war? And they said, go to Butte. Go to Butte. Work in the copper mines. And, but if you, go in, if you go in the copper mines, you can't get out of there until after the war. And about a year after working in the mines, he sent for the family. And we started living on the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation. I was just about a little over a year old. And that's when I was taken to Butte. So I was raised up in Butte. And I saw Butte as its Heydays. I was five years old when I was looked out from our apartment place to uh, park in Arizona Street and all these people, the mind whistles were blaring and everything and everybody was drinking, hugging and everything and I couldn't understand what was going on. And later on I found out that it was the end of the world. War. But from that time on I remember that there was no Thanksgiving dinner, there was no Christmas tree, there was no Easter ham at our house because these holidays and weekends were reserved for drinking. And uh, the thing was with me when I hit the, you know, my mother, she was a full-blooded Indian. My dad was, he was half, he was one quarter, one quarter Irish, one quarter French, I mean one eighth French and one eighth English. And my mother she was one of those, you know. I'll never forget that time. She, I'm eight years old, and my sister and I was watching her, and they was. She's always performed when she was drinking there, you know. And she grabbed this beer bottle, one of them long neck beer bottles, and she hit my dad right behind the head. Turned around, he looked at her. He said, "What'd you do that for, Maggie?" And she saw that she wasn't effective, so she said. Oh, I was just joshing. <laughs> but she was pretty effective, other than that, there, you know, because she, she was good with rolling pins, frying pans, pots, anything. You know. <laughs> I remember my oldest sister, Caroline, she was pregnant at that time and she ran away from her husband. And she came to the house. Well, her husband came up there a little while later. And he came in the kitchen. My dad and my brother were sitting there, and he says, I come after my wife, and don't you two try to do anything about it. You'll pay the consequences. And he started for the living room where my sister was. And before he got through the door, my mother dropped him with a cast-iron skillet. <laughs> <laughs> Here was a guy who did not like his Indian in-laws. But after he came to him and my mother, you could not separate them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember that time at J.C. Penney's, she she had she premature gray, and uh, <clears throat> this uh, they got their lease check from Fort Belmont, and he was buying clothes for the kids, all his kids. And the, my dad signed his check, and that clerk he said. Does your mother know how to write? Oh man, boy. Even I wanted to run out of the store then. <laughs> She'd come on glued on that poor guy. But you know, this at when I was in the fifth grade, this is when alcohol the alcohol caught up with me. Because even back then I had the disease of alcoholism, minus the drink. I knew how to lie, manipulate, cheat and everything there was. When, we, when I hung around with the kids in the neighborhood, I was in charge. If you didn't do what I wanted <clears throat> the way we went, you was out of the gang. And that's the way I, that's the way I dealt with life. But in the 10th grade, the drinking was there, was so damn bad in my family that I lost interest in school. And I told my mother, I says, can I go to Tacoma and stay with my brother Aaron? And she says, what? You want to go stay over there she said what would people think that i can't raise my own little boy and i felt sad for bringing that up to her so i stayed in that alcohol and she died a year later from that disease but before she died she told me when i die i don't want you to cry i want you to grow up to be a man and the thing was that when she died that resentment started because it was all over for her. It wasn't all over for me. My dad was still drinking. And the thing was that, you know, when they was blowing my mother in her grave, it was pretty hard for an 11-year-old to hold back them tears. People would put their arm around me, get your arm off me, don't you touch me. And that started the point where I could be, sure a goodness around my family but away from my family, I hurt a lot of people, and I was very bitter towards life because I was denied that part to grieve. And the thing, you know, I had to end up going back to the reservation to stay with my dad's sister, and that was, you know, that was that was a. I went to school back there at Saint Paul's Indian Mission, and he's. Two nuns, Sister Nathan and Sister Claire, called me into the room. They said, okay, we know you're from Butte. We know the behavior up in Butte, and we know what, kind of, what can happen, all this kind of stuff there, you know. You do not bring that behavior to this school because these are good students. Two days later, this high school girl stabbed this other girl in the locker room. And I told my aunt, I said, they didn't do that up in Butte. <laughs> you know, that going back there, it was painful in the fact that people can be very hurtful. People would say, oh, you see him over there? His mother died from drinking too much. His dad still drinking. You know, oh, that poor orphan. Oh, this and like that. And so this would make me more resentful and hateful towards people that I I just didn't want to be around people. I left that school when I was in the junior and high school, and I come up to Butte High. Well, I jumped right back in. My sister and her husband started drinking. I had to leave and go stay with my oldest brother. Then he started drinking, so I went to stay with my other brother. By then and there, nobody could tell me what to do or anything. And my oldest brother says, well, what do I quit high school. My oldest brother says, well, what are you going to do? And you know, nobody's going to tell me what to do or anything like that. And I told him, Well, as soon as I hit 18, I'm joining the army. This is it not an alcoholic decision? Somebody who can't take orders?
1: <laughs>
0: My first day of basic training, I knew I made a mistake. <laughs> but the thing about it was later on, I could take. Everything that the military threw at me, I could take it like they say, standing on my head and everything. They couldn't do nothing to me that could break me. But I could not handle life. I had to, my first drunk, well, all the beer I drank in high school amounted to not even two six packs. My first drunk was over in Germany. They make good beer over there. (laughs) But my first drunk was also a blackout. I remember being back at the barracks. It was on a Sunday morning. I don't remember how I got back to that cot or anything like that. And if somebody would have came in there with a big book and says, "You got a problem?" and all this kind of stuff, it would have been all over for me right then and there. But as it was, my buddies laughed about it, saw so it, having a blackout as part of the drinking. And I hadn't made any more blackouts after that. But it was always when somebody, when I looked for the solution and somebody said, oh, you don't have a drinking problem, I went along with that solution. And to me, to me, this, I went around with people in the service that graduated Yale, Princeton, all of Ivory League. They said, Fred, go get an education, finish your education, do something, but make sure you get an education. We used to go downtown in Mannheim, Germany. we drink in these lounges where they had soft playing jazz music. You can dance pretty full lines there. And, and I was never comfortable. My buddy, Rudy Rodriguez, when he came in the company, he told me, hey Fred, once you get a pass, we'll go downtown Mannheim, Germany. I know a good bar down there. It's called the Embstube. And I went down there with him. We was in that bar. I don't even think about it, five minutes, and a fight broke out. And I said, I am home. I'm home. (laughs) That's what's missing in my drink in there. (laughs) And I became the clown in the military, in this company there, you know, getting in trouble all the time, everybody laughing like that. But I also found out that on weekends, everybody was going downtown and having a good time, and I was pulling KP or extra duty, you know, for my behavior. So I finally started soldiering and everything like that. I put six years in the military, and the reason why I got out was because he was catching up to my alcohol. Rather than all my other brothers had honorable discharges, if I got anything other than an honorable discharge, what would they think? And so I got out of the military, and against my dad and my brother-in-law's wishes, I went to the mines and built, and they paid every weekend. Every Friday, we got a paycheck. Every weekend, I was drunk. When the miners got ready to go on a strike, I got out of Butte. And the reason why I got out of Butte, I said to myself, there's just too much drink in here. I went to Seattle.
1: About
0: four years after that, I had to leave Seattle because there was just too much drink in there. (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up in Portland, Oregon. And it was important in Oregon that I really come to terms that I was having a problem with my drinking. And, you know, I told this one guy, I says I think I'll go to AA. And he says, you don't belong in AA. He said, them people that drink under the Burnside Bridge and drink out of a brown paper bag, they are the alcoholics. You're not. So, all right, if you say so. <laughs> And then it kept going on, on, on. And I wanted to look for something. Why am I drinking? Why am I drinking? Everybody else can drink, go to work, be responsible, not me. Why? And I started looking for that answer. You know, in the Beatles at that time, they had their gurus. Well, I couldn't afford a guru. I couldn't afford to get out of the state, let alone go to India, you know. <laughs> <clears throat> but anyway... <laughs> Martin Luther King came up to that, with that speech about going to the mountaintop. Well, I'm just too lazy to walk up the hill. <laughs> and I, I, I kept searching for something some there. You know, why am I drinking? Why am I drinking? Then I ran into my friend, Larry. Larry was a Mormon. And he introduced me to the Book of Mormons. He, when I read it, and I, I asked him questions and stuff like that. And... Uh, Larry told me that one thing, you know the Native Americans, they are from the tribe of Levi, they are the lost tribe, and then it hit me, that's why I drink, I'm a lost Jew. You laugh, but I was serious at that (laughs) time. My, uh, (laughs) I would have stayed with the Mormon religion because I was ready to give up alcohol, but I was not ready to give up coffee or smoking. (laughs) Today, I still can't give up coffee. After I left Portland, I went back to reservation. And believe it or not, I overstayed my welcome. <laughs> so I was on the road again. There you know, I went down to Salt Lake this time, and I, my buddy said, "Well, you know, you get down there, you you have to really control your drinking." That was the best party I ever got into was in Salt Lake. <laughs> you know, you, you, they don't let serve you whiskey over the bar. You got to take your own bottle in. You got to buy the chaser from the bartender, and at that time, a coke would be a Dollar, that was a glass of water was a dollar, but boy, you made some pretty stiff drinks, boy. <laughs> and you know, after being at Salt Lake, I finally figured out well, there's just too much drinking down here too. So I went back to the reservation, and I managed to stay there, worked on the road, and did the odds and ends, and I ended up working for the tribe my drinking was still there and it was there that they gave me the ultimatum either do something about your drinking or hit the road so this was the first time I went I went in a detox and I uh I played their game with them and I got out when I got out of the detox I got a, I got my job back I got another car I got a job as a Manager of a new apartment complex, ballistic things coming at me, and not once did I think I started taking all the credit for it. It was the same thing, you know. I, when I was in detox, I fell in love, and you know that's to me. Some should told me about this woman because when she got out of detox, she had to go for 30-day treatment down Thunderchild in Sheridan, Wyoming. There, you know. Some should have said, there's something wrong here. you <laughs> But you know how it is when you're in, in a detox or a treatment. You know, you fall in love, you know. <laughs> they call it, you know, we call it love. You know, it was actually my hormones were getting, getting to me. <laughs> anyway, she went out. When we was together, she went out drinking. And I went looking in all the bars for her. And my sponsor at that time told me, he says... If you continue to drink, chasing her, you know, let her go. And it was very hard for me to do. Something. And uh, so about a year after that, I did another wonderful thing in my I got married. <laughs> I stood at the altar with this man, and I said to myself, this woman's going to make me happy the rest of my life. She didn't know she had that responsibility, you know. <laughs> I gave it to her. <laughs>
1: and,
0: you know, the. when anything went wrong in that marriage, I blamed her. And there was, you know, my sobriety in those four years that I was in that program was such that when I would come home, my behavior, my wife would say, God, Fred, I wish you would go out and get drunk because I was on one heck of a drive. And, you know... When I finally went back out, I picked up a DUI. I was more scared of what my wife was gonna do than what the jail or the cops could ever do But when I went before the judge, the judge asked me what I wanted to do, and I said I wanted a court and uh, with the jury. I was gonna fight this. And he said, well, that is your constitutional rights. You have that right. However, I must warn you that when they brought you in last night, they had a video of you. And I said, what was the other deals there? You know? <laughs> I wasn't about ready to see myself drunk. No way, boy. <laughs> so I took the other deal there.
1: <laughs> but
0: my wife said, you will pay for all the car and pickup insurance out of your own pocket and I'll tell you, those insurance jumped. First of all, I got canceled, turned Steel. I had to go to that dairy land or something like that, and it was by the month. And next time I went out, it was just for a couple weeks, and then I went out the third time, and I ended up going down to Thunderbird Alcoholic Treatment Center, Sheridan, Wyoming, where I graduated with a flying colors, (laughs) because I knew how to BS, and they couldn't And I came back from there on fifty-eight days after I got back, and this time I was drunk for eight weeks up in Chinook, and I was enjoying myself, everything, because when I drink and I get away from family, it seems okay. When I get around family, when I'm drinking, all I'm resenting go back into play. Anyway, I went back to reservation drinking. I knew this was the end. And I went back to the residue. I had a 25 automatic pistol, and I, and I was sitting there. I'm one of them selfish drunks. I had about this much left in a whiskey bottle, and I'm not going to leave any drinks behind for nobody. <laughs> so I, as soon as I finish this bottle, I'm going to kill myself. You know, and I would look up at my grave where my mother and dad were buried, and I would cuss them out, feel sorry for myself. And I put that pistol in my mouth. I got to the bottom of that whiskey bottle. Just when I was getting down to the last few slugs in there, whiskey started doing what it always does, the bottle. (laughs) I'll commit suicide tomorrow. (laughs) But later on, in search of that bottle, I got in trouble with that gun. And so I know the outcome of my last relapse over it. I don't know the outcome of it. And the thing is there, you know, I had to go, I was drinking when I was depressed. I told my wife, I said, geez, I feel terrible when I wake up in the morning. I can't sleep, I can't. So she had me go to the doctor. And I went to the doctor and he said, we'll take a blood test and we'll call you back. So they called me back, he said, your blood's okay, iron's up, potassium, everything, everything. Do you think there's a possibility that you can be depressed? I said, depressed? Isn't that a woman's disease? (laughs) 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 Men don't get depressed. Well, I was depressed. And if you ever get drunk being depressed, look out. Like I said, I know the outcome of my last relapse. And the thing was, you know, I ended up in a psychiatric hospital in Sheridan, Wyoming, for three months. And I went down there, and it was the same BS. Three of us guys sitting against, leaning up against the wall, judging everybody else inside that mental institution. Look at that, look at that one there, you know? And there was that one guy, I would go in the TV room to watch TV, and he always recited that poetry. Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard. But he could never get it right. (laughs) Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard and some dogs were there or something like that. She opened the cupboard, there was no, all the bones fell out or something like that. (laughs) And that used to get to me, you know, boy. And I finally made up my mind, you know, next time I go over to the library, I'm going to look up that poem, I'm going to make a copy of it, I'm going to give it to him. Then it hit me, you know, if I did that and I gave it to him, he would look at me like, what are you, nuts or something? <laughs> I could not accept people can be their own self. That was very difficult for me. And I went from that psychiatric hospital to the uh, alcoholic treatment for another three months. The counselor that these, these my buddies suggested I go see, his name was John Henry. He was from Anaconda. He was himself eight times in a treatment, and now he was a counselor. And I went, to, I went and talked to him. I said, "Yeah, I can do thirty days." He talked me into ninety days because he said, "What do you? What else you got going for you?" Nothing. So I did ninety days, and I was thank God. You know when, when God. You know, the only way God can help me is if I'm willing to help myself. That's the only way he can do it. In them 90 days in that treatment center, John Henry taught me about what acceptance and all this stuff was. He was, you know, to me, he was pretty mean at times. Like the time I, I argued with him, you know, what spiritual awakening was. And he said, he finally got tired of it, and he said, you want to see a spiritual awakening? I said, yeah, show me spiritual. Because me, I had that religious belief. It had to come from up, of sky and halo and all this kind of stuff. And he said, you really want to see a spiritual awakening? Yeah, show me, show me. He said, reach behind you and pull your head out.
1: <laughs>
0: I said, boy, that's cruel. It's, you know, geez, that's mean to say, you know. But that's the truth. As long as my head's up there, I can't see nothing else. <laughs> and, you know, I signed divorce papers when I was in that treatment center. And when he, when I came out for signing the papers, I had to go by his office and let him know I was finished and going back to unit. And he says, how did it go? And I says, good. I finally got rid of that hay bag. And he says, all right, go back to your unit. So I walked out of there. And the I went, the farther I got down that hallway, my I was learning how to deal with my emotions then. And you know, when I married that woman, I did not marry her to sign divorce treatment, just divorce papers and elk. And the thing was, you know, I just couldn't hold it. I went back to his office and I was going to talk to him how I felt. And he says, what's the problem? And I broke him. It. It's the first time I started. And, you know, that was uh, because, you know, nothing in that marriage was going to go right because I was the problem, not her. And I did not want to admit that I was the problem. And, you know, he told me I had a resentment over signing the divorce papers. I had a resentment over things, but with her and He told me, he says, you know, Fred, you keep coming back to AA, and one day you will say you love your ex-wife. I said, this guy's got to be out of his rabbit, you know, mind. (laughs) But it came true. It came true. I kept coming back, and today I can say I love my ex-wife. In fact, when she died over a year ago from cancer, I cried. And, you know, this is what AA has taught me. It's not about me all the time. And, anyway, before I got out of that treatment, there was this one guy, his name was, they called him Indian John. John Henry used to always ask, Ask every time he come in treatment, John would ask him, well, what's going to be different this time? He said, I don't know. He says, every time I go out and get drunk now, he says, I lose control of my bowel movement. So... When he graduated, he was there for a 30 day program. He graduated, John Henry asked him, what's going to be different? Just, I'm going to go out and shit my pets and then get drunk. <laughs> I thought, now nah, that's honesty. You know? <laughs> I, got the, I got out of the treatment center there and I came back here, I came here to Helena. I did not want to come to Helena. Because I remember the Last Chance Gulch. That was part of my drinking deal. But when I came back against my bitter judgment and against what I wanted in life and everything, I saw a different Helena. I was at the board Andrews halfway house five months before I got sentenced to prison. And you people brought AA into the halfway house. You people brought the message to this guy who very reluctantly accepted it. And you know, I went to my first AA roundup before I went to prison. It was a spring roundup in Butte. And that's what I needed. That's what I really needed before I went to prison. And it was, you know, it was that letting go deal. And they told me, if you're going to prison, you better have a sponsor. Well, what am I going to do with the sponsor in prison? Thank God I listened to you people. I got a sponsor before I went. And I was able to call him up. I was able to call him. And I said, this guy's really a really good guy. He's a God gift and everything. And when I got out of prison, he showed me a piece of paper and it had amount of time and it had amount of money next to it. And I said, what is this for? He said, this is a phone call that you made to me. We're self-supporting through our own contribution. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought, I thought you was a good guy there. You know? <laughs> I had to pay for my phone calls there. You know? But that's how AA works. And you know, when I was in prison, this, uh, I had, and my resentment towards my ex-wife at that time was such that it used to keep me awake at night. And I would be awake all night long. If I hadn't married that woman, I wouldn't be here. And all this time. And then the next thing I knew, the guard would be opening the doors. We had to get up. I'd be no sleep. I'd be burnt out and everything like that. Beautiful. <laughs> if she knew how much control she had over me, she would have loved that boy. <laughs> but the thing was, you know, with... Uh, my deal of thinking in prison was you know, when I was going to the AA meetings before, this one woman used to come to the meeting. I knew her story. I knew when she was going to laugh, when she was joke, joke when she was going to cry, and all this kind of stuff. I knew it. And after the meeting, we'd go have coffee, and I would judge her. And I was saying, if she doesn't change that story, she's never going to make it. Not in the AA. It's always the same story. Oh, When I was in prison, I got to thinking, I wonder if she's telling that same story. (laughs) The one I should have listened to, you know. But uh, after prison, after I got out, I went to pre-release for 90 days and pre-release at Butte. And before this whole thing happened, years before, my brother-in-law and my sister ran that Argyle Hotel in Butte, where the pre is had. My nephew took me into this room and he showed me his room. He had a telephone in there, and he was only about nine years old then. He was his phone, his radio, his alarm, TV, and this was his room. His desk to study in. He was so happy and everything. Like when I came from prison, my first night in the Butte pre-release. And I tell you, I didn't sleep. I laid awake week on thinking, what what went wrong? And I saw the games that they play in prison. I saw the games, that, the immature games that they play in prison, and it, pre-release and like that. That when I got out of pre-release in 91, February of 91, I said to myself, I will go to any lengths not to come back to the Smithy Mouse outfit. I kept that. I went to any lengths that time, as painful as it got, I came kept coming back. The thing was, you know, after I got out, I was allowed to come over to Helena to see my sponsor. I had a Jeep pickup that had no radio in it, and he used to tell me things that when I drove back to Butte by myself with no radio in it, the only thing going on was between these ears. Boy, I I hate that son again. I'll never talk to him and all this kind of stuff. next few days I find myself calling him, and he was... He wasn't, you know, telling me, you got to do this, you got to, he was showing me that there was another way to look at the situation. It was my perception of how he was telling it to me, because I didn't want to hear it. I wanted my own better judgment. The importance of having a sponsor to me is, because without a sponsor, I would have never have made it. I had to turn over my better judgment to somebody. Because my better judgment, what they do for me, and I didn't want to give it up, but my better judgment got me in jail, prison, divorces, fired from jobs, all this kind of stuff, and I didn't want to give it up. But when he took over my better judgment, I could see life a little. And the thing was, you know, my aunt who raised me after uh, she never wrote to me when I was in prison. And I had a real strong resentment. And it kept building, kept building. Because I put her on a pedestal. All I wanted was for her to say she loved me. It was more important for her to tell me she loved me than it was for God. That's where I was with that. And it was eating me up. And I finally made up my mind. I said, if anything happens to her, I am not going to her funeral. I... I was over here to Helen, and I talking to my sponsor, and I thought, well, I'll let him know about that. And I, I told him, that as anything happens to her, I'm not going to her funeral. He said, well, you don't have to. And I said, finally, he agreed this with me. And you know what? He said, however, I said, uh-oh, <laughs> it will be nice if you go see her while she's still alive. I said, why didn't I keep my mouth shut there? <laughs> And then my other excuse was, you know, my car wouldn't make it. Well, my girlfriend at that time, she says, Well, we can go in my car. I would love to see your reservation. I invited you, you know. <laughs> but we went in her car, and it was a 1988 Honda Civic, and not CXR, one of the little poop deals. And all of, every mile down from Butte to Malta, where my aunt was in a restaurant, I prayed, God, let this car break down. <laughs> it was getting 40 miles to the gallon. <laughs> we got down there. We walked in there to the desk, and the nurse says, can I help you? And I said, I want to see Mrs. And he said, Oh, she's back over. She's down in that room there. So we headed down there, and my aunt was sleeping. Here was a big woman at one time. I used to watch her make bread. She would knead that dough. She would flip it over and punch it. And I used to think, boy, I hope I never come on the receiving end of that punch. <laughs> and here she was in the restroom. She had osteoporosis and she was frail, thin, sleeping. And I told my friend, my girlfriend, I said, let's leave. We'll come back later. She said, all right. So we headed out to the front door. I knew if I got out the front door, I would have said, I come all the way from Butte, and she's sleeping. I'm not going back and talking. I would have made up some kind of excuse not to go back. And we got to the front desk, and the nurse says, what's wrong? She's sleeping. We'll come back later. Oh, no, she sleeps all the time. Come on, she'll love company. I, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so we headed on back to the room. And they, the nurse woke up, my aunt, she says, Mrs. Warner, she says, you got company my aunt looked up from that bed. She said, Freddie, Freddie, kiss me, kiss me. She was 92 years old at the time. I did not have to say I was sorry. She did not have to say she was sorry. God took over. He took over there. A couple of years after that, when she passed away, I went to her funeral. I drove from Butte all the way back to by myself. When I got back to that pruno, I did not have to cry at that pruno because I was at peace with her, I was at peace with God, mainly I was at peace with myself. And thank God, I thank God for this program. You see, when I got out of the, when I got out of the uh, pre-release, I started going down to the club in Butte and I started playing my same old game that I always played and my my, uh, I started telling the BS and all that kind of stuff. And this old timer sitting right across the table from me, he said, Yep, that's right, Fred, you can't BS a, you can't bullshit a bullshitter. And I, what the hell? Boy, I got mad and everything. And I punished that guy. I didn't come back for a few meetings sir. you know.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that was, that was my, there was that one time this Indian guy, at the Sunday morning meeting, he he got to talking. And he got talking about the moon, the stars, Mother Earth, and all. He had it going. He even had me going. Really, I was I was going. someday I can get up there and I can sound just like that. you know? And when he got finished talking, this woman that was sitting next to me, she says, You Indians are oh so spiritual. And I looked at her... <laughs> If I'm so damn spiritual, what am I doing in an AA meeting? <laughs> this is where I come to find spiritual spirituality. And that that's where it had to be, that search for the spirituality. In a big book it says, spirituality is not a theory, you have to live it. I was always thinking that spirituality, I can go to the mountaintop, I can go to church, I can do this, and, and I'll get that spirituality. I can go to the sweat lodge, I'll get to me, when I go into a sweat lodge, when I go into a church, I go there to celebrate my spirituality at this point. When I go back to Fort Belmont, I go back there every Memorial Day to clean graves. That's how I make amends to my mother and dad. And when I go back there, I always go back down to the Chief Joseph battlefield where he surrendered. And I make that deal. That is my cathedral. I make my prayers around there. I don't do that to get spiritual. I do that to celebrate my spirituality. And I do that to make amends to my ancestors because alcohol and drugs was never a part of their culture. I abused. And so every year when I go back to Chief Joseph Battlefield, I leave my coin, my sobriety coin, at where chief, chief Looking Glass was killed. I leave it there. That was my amen. And the thing is, you know, this whole, my girlfriend, she had a, she had a uh, dog. She got out of the rescue. His name was, I think it was Brandy or Wino or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, she says, uh, she named him... uh, Right as she going out to the gate from the animal shelter, there's a sign there that says Chelsea Bailey. So she said, Your name's gonna be Bailey. So that's what it was. I didn't like that dog in the beginning. And but we grew close together as time went on. I used to take him for walks and he to, I don't know if he did that to bug me. He knew that I was an alcoholic or what he you know. But he would go, we'd start down a trail and he would lift his leg up here, go across lift his leg up here, go across, lift his leg. And I said, Bailey, you keep that up, we're never going to get to Harrison Avenue. And he's had his leg up in the air looking at me like, you know, bear with me, you know. (laughs) But that dog taught me one thing about life. Stop and smell the roses. Not where he lift his leg. (laughs) That dog taught me that there was fish in that creek. That there was muskrats in that creek. There used to be a uh, what do you call them, Yellow wing blackbird. that used to uh, wait till we went past, and he would knock my cap off. There, you know, these kind of things. I wouldn't. I wouldn't got mad and come back with a gun at that bird. There, you know. But this dog taught me so much, so much. And they say dogs are good medicine, and I believe it. I remember that time that I was going out of town, and I stopped at Burger King. I got a plain hamburger for him, and I got my hamburger. Well, I gave him his hamburger, and I went over to the gas station. I took that hamburger, and I stuck it underneath the seat, and I went over to the gas station, got a bottle of pop, and I came back, and I could smell hamburger. And he had a wrap, and the only thing he didn't eat was a pickle. (laughs) And I said... Bailey, damn you, and his tail just kept wagging, you know, bring me another hamburger. You know. <laughs> but that's the way it was. That was the worst I ever yelled at that dog. Bailey, damn you, you know. My girlfriend used to say, you got to correct him, you got to correct him, you know. When she yelled at him, I even jumped there, you know. <laughs> but, you know, when uh, we found out that he had cancer, we had to put him down on a Sunday, and I wanted to get out of it, but my girlfriend said, Bailey would want you there. So I packed them in there, and uh, they gave him the shot. I wore sunglass clips over these glasses, to make sure that nobody sees me if I cry. And of all things, it was a woman vet that, that gave him a shot. And, oh, geez, now I, gotta, I hope I don't cry in front of a woman there, you know? But that's what happened. I told my Girlfriend, I said, His eyes are still open. She said, Yeah, but he's gone. Now I missed that dog. And it's, I found out that, you know, in life, we got to tell the people next to us that we love. Because I heard, I learned a very bad message in life is that my one sister, I was mad at her, and don't talk to me, I don't want anything to do with you. And she burnt up in a fire. And it, caught, it it. really chewed me out. And, you know, I thank God that I had a sponsor because if I didn't have a sponsor and I didn't go back to my aunt's funeral, I'd have either been in prison or I could have been dead now because that resentment would resent have ate me. And, you know, that that pride of telling another person or another woman that I hurt inside, I can't keep that much. Mock- what the image I love today is when, like in Butte, I was walking home. These kids were in the play field, and this snowballs started flying over to me. And I looked over at them kids real mean. And they said, we're sorry, we're sorry. You know, they didn't mean to throw them snowballs towards me, but they came in my direction. And I bend over and I picked up a snowball and I threw it back and about then six more coming up and and these two guys come running out of the house, we'll help you chief, we'll help you, you know. (laughs) So three of us against all these kids and I had snow down my neck and everything. And finally this guy said, we better quit. So I said, We surrender, we surrender. And then they lined it up. What 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 are they lining up for? The high five, you know, This is what sobriety gave me. Dogs and kids, that's what it's about. Without this program, I would never, never went that trail. And you know, because i them, you know, they say, how come they're having an Indian AA speaker? Are they different? Are they saying they're different? No. Because my friend who's in here today, he mentioned it one time that he was down Albuquerque or someplace down south, and he was the only white man in the meeting. Everybody else was Indian. And I thought to myself, how many hundreds of AA meetings have I been in that I was the only Indian, you know? And so, you know, to me, an Indian AA speaker is not that much different. It's to show the Indians that they can make it in AA. Because to me, if, they, if I never saw... Indians in AA, I would have said to myself, it doesn't work for me. I was always looking for an excuse. But today, I know there is no excuse. And that third step prayer, you know, it took me years to really realize what it says. You know, help the other alcoholic who's still suffering. The primary purpose is so important for AA. You know, what is God's will for me? Quit feeling sorry for myself and go to a meeting. Help the other alcoholic who's still suffering. This is what God's will is for me. And I struggled over that thing. You know, oh, I, I don't know what I've been in AA for years. I don't know what God's will for me. Very simple. Help the other alcoholic who's suffering. When I was diagnosed with cancer up here at Port Harrison, I left that hospital with the intention of committing suicide, and I would have, if I would have gotten to an AA meeting. If I would have gotten to an AA meeting and said, I have cancer, I don't think I can handle it. I don't think I can. When the most I would have gotten was, oh, I'll pray for you. Be okay. I will pray for you. And I probably would have committed suicide that night. But when you call somebody up in AA and you tell them, you know, I don't think I'll make it in this group. I don't think I'll handle this cancer. I'm thinking I commit suicide. And they tell you, Fred, the only primary purpose you have in life is to stay sober and help the other alcoholic who's still suffering. Click. <laughs> that's a nice way to say, get off the goddamn pity pot." <laughs> when I called Kurt here up and told him the situation, he took off from job, and we went to have a coffee, and we talked. I said, Don't hold it inside, because that's... And, you know, I hope today that I said something that helped you, my spirit and strength and hope, you know. My parents were not the reason why I drank. My sponsor, John Henry's, it's a shame that when your mother and dad dealt with life's problems, they drank. How did you deal with them? So, you know, there's a lot of things in AA, just listening to speakers and everything that I can relate to that helps me on my prayers in the morning are not, God, keep me sober today. My prayers are, God, what can I do for you today that's going to keep me sober? I was so damn selfish, and never realized. I wanted God to do everything for me. That all I have to do now, to do his will. And things are a little bit better. You know, these happy, joyous, and free days, they're not every day. I gotta enjoy them when they're here. And uh, I found out, you know, that I can go to any AA meeting in the United States. My oldest sister, when she moved to Yakima, Washington, said, Fred, I hate to leave because I was going to be the last one that our family left in Butte. She said, I hate to leave and leave you here all alone. I said, Caroline, as long as there's an AA meeting in Butte, I have family. You know, and this, this thing here, AA, that spirituality, brought me closer to my culture. It made me more proud to be an Indian than I My ancestors never had to use drugs or alcohol. And, you know, I heard people at meetings say, this is an easier, softer way. I often think you don't have a sponsor, do you? <laughs> well, I want to thank you. I want to thank Gary for inviting me to be here to speak. It was an honor. And I'm just probably getting over shaken. I want to thank Susie for. It. And you know, we come from the, from the same reservation. And they say, you know, oh, and I go back to the reservations, say, all them drunks and everything back there, there's nothing but drinking, drugging, and all that kind of stuff. Well, who puts on these sweats? Who puts on these sun dances? Who puts on these powwows? Not the drunks. The sober Indians do. The people who believe in our culture. Who, who gets the drums? Who learns how to sing? Who learns how to dance to carry the song for the next generation? And so, you know, once again, I want to thank you very much. For being here it was such an honor. Aho. Aho.